you go find them, you throw your arms around them, you give them a big kiss on the mouth if you're a girl. Well, I'm telling you, quarterbacks, you get all the good-looking <laughs> women. I, a, what a beautiful woman. Uh, the women lose their mind. Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Dual Drip Podcast. My name's Cam. My name is Nick. And, Nick, I know you're a baseball fan, right? Yes, I'm a big Yankees fan. Are you ready for the new revolution of baseball? What are you talking about? Are you ready to see a player steal first base? Not really sure where you're going with this, but sure, I'd love to see it. Because just today, about a couple hours ago, or when we were recording the podcast, the MLB introduced an idea that they're going to test in the Atlantic League that a player is going to be able to steal first base. Does this have to do with striking out and the ball gets away with the catcher, or oh, is it something different? Something different. The ball is live at all times. As long as they don't make contact with the ball, they can steal at any time. So, so we're ball- just going to see guys bolt up the first base line out of the batter's box when there's, yep. like, two strikes? Yep. If it's was, if it a passed ball or a wild pitch, they can bolt for it. That is something else. If you get first base thrown on you, you need to just retire on the spot. I'm sorry, but... Yeah, the only thing I can think of that would be worse is if you try stealing first when the pitcher sells the ball and you get thrown out. <laughs> that would be stupid. That would be actually stupid. Imagine a pitcher taking their time, they turn their back around, and then they just get first base thrown on them. Yeah, I cannot believe this would actually happen, but it sounds like a really fun proposal from the MLB. Yep, it's going to, they have three years in Atlanta League to test it out. I doubt this will ever make it, but could you imagine Billy Hamilton stealing first? It would just be so electric. A lot of fun. Thinking of stealing, let's talk about Florida and see if they can steal a couple games off of their schedule, which is surprisingly harder than people make it out to be. Yes, it is hard. People are not giving the SEC East credit where it's due this season. There are a few games on the schedule that I think they could lose. LSU and Auburn are back-to-back, including the back half of that being at LSU. And then they also have the Georgia-Florida game. That comes the first weekend of November. Those three are all going to be challenges. And honestly, if things break the wrong way for Florida, I could see them losing to either Missouri or Florida State or maybe Miami or Tennessee. And remember, in that there's a fourth game in that that stretch of Auburn, LSU, and Georgia. And they have to go to South Carolina in williams Bryce Stadium. Which yes. is me. Back-to-back road games, body blow theory suggests that Florida would get upset or at least lose according to the spread against South Carolina. There's a chance they lose that game. I think their floor for this season is 8-4. and four. I see the floor for Florida at being a 7-5 and five, just because if things go bad, if Felipe Franks as a quarterback is not good enough, which I think he is, but let's say he's not. Michael P. Ron does not have the games that we hoped that he was going to have, and the offense isn't able to move the ball. And Florida could conceivably lose five games on this schedule. 
Yeah, Florida's defense is not going to be trusted to the level that I trusted it under Will Muschamp. But Felipe Franks wasn't great last year, and they still won nine games, was it? So I think even if Felipe Franks takes a little bit of a step back, they could still manage to go eight and four. I don't love Tennessee. I don't love Florida State. Lose both those games. And obviously, we can both see them losing to Auburn, LSU, and Georgia. Correct. Yeah. The ceiling for Florida is running the table. I don't know about that, but explain. Here's, it hinges on the fact of Auburn and LSU not being as good as people think they are. If Auburn, let's say they can't throw out the quarterback situation, Miles on is fired by this time, or he is super on the hot seat, then they should probably beat Auburn pretty easily. If LSU comes in and Burrow is still not as good of a quarterback in the offense really takes a step back, then Florida may be able to win that game. South Carolina, they would be favored to win. And all they'd have to do is just beat a good Georgia team. If they beat Georgia and the rest of the schedule works out in their favor, they could go undefeated. Yeah, I absolutely think that they'll have a chance to beat Georgia this year. At the end of the season, Georgia and Florida were pretty much seen as being on the same level, especially after the bowl games where Florida kicked the shit out of my Wolverines and Texas beat Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. So I think the Georgia game is winnable, especially because it's not on the road. It's a split atmosphere. Both teams have to travel. There's no real psychological advantage. But Florida was able to keep it close last year. Now, when it comes to LSU and Auburn, those games are back-to-back. And we're also throwing South Carolina in at the end of that. Gainesville, Baton Rouge, and Columbia. I mean, that just sounds like a three-week college road trip of some high school student that knows they want to go to a big party football school in the South. Florida's going to have to play three big games in all of those towns. They're going to have to take on Auburn. Auburn could be really good. We don't know what to expect out of Auburn. LSU. LSU's got talent, and they have the most stable quarterback they've had since Zach Mettenberger. And I like South Carolina where they're at at quarterback, and they're going to be desperate for wins because of how tough that schedule is. I think that three-game gauntlet with a bye on one end of it and a game against Towson on the other end, that three-game schedule is nearly impossible for anybody to go 3-0 and against, much less a team like Florida. I think we're going to have to disagree on this one, but another place that I think we do agree is the Texas Longhorns. Yeah. When it comes to Texas, I think their ceiling's 11-1. We've talked about this before, the LSU-Texas game. We both think LSU can win that game. But Texas has the type of team that can give Oklahoma fits. Texas can move the ball, but they still have a relatively elite defense. And I think by the middle of the season, the new starters for the Texas Longhorns will have their feet under themselves. They'll be ready to play in a big game. This is a game they can win. Again, it's not a road atmosphere. And I think Texas, if they win that game, they can keep themselves in playoff contention. 
and hit their ceiling potentially of going 11 and 1. Yeah, I think that we agree that they're probably going to split one of LSU and Oklahoma in the best case scenario. And if they just say they win both of them and they're coming in at 6 and 0, they're going to get upset by one of TCU or Iowa State. Heck, they could get upset by Baylor. I just don't see them running the table. Yeah, dreams go to die in Ames, Iowa. And if Texas is undefeated and Iowa State's having a good year, maybe one or two losses, that'll be a primetime game with college game day there. Top 10 teams lose in Ames. I mean, that's all it is. This is Texas's turn. If they're going to be a top 10 team, there's a chance they'll lose at Iowa State. I just don't think they can do better than 11-1. and one. At least it's not Lawrence, Kansas. Oh, yeah. Definitely not a place we want to see Texas losing again if you're a Longhorn fan. But for everyone else, lose it for the memes, guys. Now, for the worst-case scenario, you're, you are saying that their worst case is 7-5. and five. I see it's more of they could go 6-6. Six and six. Yeah, looking at the schedule in depth, LSU, I believe they're going to lose that game, regardless of what happens the rest of the season. Oklahoma, that's a game I could see them losing. Iowa State, we've already talked about that. I could see them losing that game, too. Now you have games against Baylor and TCU on the road and Oklahoma State at home. And I think those are probably the six games you think they're most likely to lose. I just can't see them losing to all of those teams. I think Oklahoma State going to Austin, that's going to be a real tough challenge for a Cowboy team that brings in new talent on the offensive side, has weapons offensively, but they need to find themselves a quarterback to go into Texas in week four, a team that's still going to be ranked in the top 25, even if they lose to LSU. I think it's too tall of a task for Oklahoma State, and I don't think they're going to be able to beat Texas. That is where we disagree. I think Oklahoma State, while they are young, they do have the offensive talent that is required to knock off a team like Texas with not as proven depth and talent on the defensive side, especially coming into this season. And so they got into a shootout. We've seen Oklahoma State in shootouts. They are capable of putting up points. Mm -hmm. While, yes, the quarterback situation's new, they still have talent, especially on the offensive side. I love Oklahoma State at wide receiver. I love Tylen Wallace. I love Dylan Stoner. And maybe Spencer Sanders ends up being a real breakout freshman in the way that, well, I mean, he's a redshirt freshman this year. So... Maybe his second year on campus is, I don't know, really solid compared to what Oklahoma State's had in the past at quarterback with guys like Mason Rudolph and Brandon Whedon. I just don't think that Oklahoma State is going to be able to stop Texas defensively enough. I think Oklahoma State's going to have one of the worst defenses in the Power Five this year. That we do agree with. But... Outside of that, don't see them losing Texas Tech. They're going to beat Kansas State. They are not losing to Kansas again, especially not at home. And they should be yes. West Virginia. Yeah, so, a road trip to West Virginia off of a bye week. They're going to win that game. Kansas, Kansas State, Texas Tech, Rice, Louisiana Tech. 
no matter what drunk Terry Bradshaw says, Texas is winning those games. Staying in state, let's talk about the Aggies a little bit. This is, for my money, the second hardest schedule in all of college football, behind only South Carolina. I think the ceiling for this team is 10-2. and two. They have to play at Clemson, at Georgia, at LSU, and they still have Alabama and Auburn at home. Out of those games, even if Kellen Mond is a top-five quarterback in college football, he's not going to be better than Trevor Lawrence, he's not going to be better than Tua, and he's probably not going to be better than Jake Fromm. I just can't see them winning, hell, even two of those games. They're going to lose to Clemson, and I think even in the best-case scenario, they're still going to lose to Georgia, but a 10-2 A&M team that loses to Clemson and Georgia would be in Atlanta with a chance to go to the playoff. That's why we disagree. I have said on the last episode that I think that Texas A&M is going to go into Clemson and get the W. Which means they're going to lose one of Georgia, LSU, and Alabama. The thing with Texas A&M is that they do have talent on defense to where I'm not as concerned because they're not starting a freshman. They return a lot of talent on that defensive side. And we obviously know what Kellen Mond can potentially do. If he's just consistent, he can pull off some magic. Not Johnny Manziel magic. But he's mobile enough to where he's going to be able to give teams fits. Okay, so we both feel like it would be impossible for A&M to run this schedule. I don't think any team in college football could run the schedule that A&M has to play. I think Ohio State would lose somewhere. I think Alabama or Clemson or Georgia, I know those three are on the schedule, but I think they would lose somewhere. Looking at the floor for this team, based on the talent they have and the schedule, I think there's a chance A&M goes 6-6. Six and six. Small chance, but uh, I could see them losing to Clemson, losing to Auburn, losing to Alabama, losing to Georgia, losing to LSU, and maybe losing to Mississippi State. Those are teams they've lost to in the past, well, except for Georgia, because the SEC scheduling sucks and they've never played Georgia. And Kellen Mond, while he shined, especially in the bowl game, he has his downfalls, his weaknesses as a college quarterback. He's not perfect, and he's going to be overmatched, and the talent is going to be overmatched in at least four, if not five, of these games. I see five and seven and missing a bowl game completely if everything goes bad. That means injuries. Kellen Mond is just not a good quarterback, and he has to get replaced. And the offensive line is not able to sustain a consistent ground game. That would mean losing Clemson, Auburn, Bama, Georgia, and LSU, the easy ones, but also dropping two of Arkansas, Mississippi, and losing to South Carolina. It's not like Okay, Arkansas should be an easy win, but Mississippi's still going to be able to move the ball, although not as good as they were last year. Mississippi State's defense is still going to be really good. South Carolina is just an overall good team. Even a team as talented as Texas A&M is on paper. We don't play games on paper. And none of those four games are games that are just going to absolutely wipe the floor with them. I definitely agree that there's a chance that A&M could lose one of those toss-up games 
Ole Miss could be sneaky tough because it's the week after they play Bama. South Carolina could be tough because South Carolina could be very desperate to win games. They're going to have to scrape and crawl their way to bowl eligibility. But I think Jimbo Fisher is going to have to keep the ship upright with Texas A&M. I think he's learned from Florida State that the culture is very important, and this is something he's fixed at Texas A&M. I just don't see them getting upset and losing focus to a team like Ole Miss or Arkansas. Speaking about focus, this is a team that was definitely focusing more last season as they had a really good run to end the year. That's the Nebraska Cornhuskers. Yeah, this team ended the year 4-2, and two, but don't let that fool you. The two games they lost were on a last-second field goal at Iowa and at Ohio State by only five points. The, In my opinion, this team is going to hover right around their over-under of eight wins. I can see them winning nine, or I can see them winning seven, but it's really hard to see this team fluctuate based on what we saw at the end of the year last year. I think Ohio State's a game they could lose. I think Wisconsin's a game they could lose. Iowa's a game they could lose. And Northwestern's a game they could lose. If I had to guess, I'd say they go 8-4. and four. They could conceivably win one of those games. All four of them are at home. They could also end up losing to Purdue or Minnesota on the road. What do you think? I see Nebraska as more of a 7-5 and five team. Yes, the team ended really hot last season. The thing is, the talent, while it's there, it's still growing. It's still learning. It's only year two under Scott Frost. But if everything went right, this is a pretty winnable schedule. There is not outside the realm of possibility. They just run the table and go 12-0 and to the Big Ten championship game. Uh-oh, retard alert. There's no way Nebraska wins out with this schedule. And it's not that the schedule's that tough, and it's not that Nebraska is a bad team. They play their toughest games at home, but having to play Ohio State and Northwestern back-to-back, having to play Purdue and Wisconsin back-to-back, those are not easy games. And I just don't think that they have the depth Defensively, they're not as talented. They're not going to control the clock. Their defense is, in games against Iowa and Wisconsin, going to have to be on the field for 80-plus plays. If Nebraska is just a top 30-ish team and Adrian Martinez has a Heisman 40 season, not that he wins it, but he's in the discussion. Look at these games. Ohio State, while we assume Ohio State's going to be a top 10, top 5 team, it is not outside the own possibility that Ohio State isn't as good as we think, which we'll talk about later in the podcast. Northwestern has Hunter Johnson, but we're still banking on a transfer from Clemson, who, while good as we think he's going to be, we're not exactly sure. Minnesota is the same thing with potential with Road to Boat, but we're not exactly sure. Purdue, potential, we're not sure. Wisconsin, Iowa, all are in the same boat. There's a good chance that none of these teams are as good as anyone thinks they are. You did miss a team on the schedule. In fact, we both missed this team, and that team is 9-Windiana. Okay, Indiana, I think they have a chance to have a special season. And you called me retarded for saying Nebraska was going to go undefeated in the best case. 
There is no way this Indiana team can go nine wins. I'm going to start by giving you the games that they are going to win, even in their worst-case scenario, which is going 4-8. Ball State, Eastern Illinois, UConn, and Rutgers. Those games, non-negotiable, they're winning them. I think we both agree on that. Yep. After that, Maryland, Purdue, Northwestern, Michigan State. Those are all winnable games, those four. They have four more games, which I think they're going to be underdogs in, but they play two of them at home. Two of them, yeah, they're on the road, but um, Ohio State, Nebraska, Penn State, and Michigan, especially with Ohio State and Michigan being at home, they would have to split probably those two games to have a shot at this. I think, in fact, they would probably have to beat Ohio State on the front end just to garner the hype and the attention teams would be a little bit intimidated with playing Indiana. If they could beat Ohio State in week three, which we've seen Indiana give Ohio State trouble before, their next games are UConn at Michigan State, Rutgers at Maryland, and then they'd roll up to Nebraska 7-0 and and undefeated. But there's a chance that they roll up to Nebraska 6-1 and even if they lose to Ohio State. First of all, Indiana could beat the Thinking Patriots, and no one would would take Indiana football seriously. I don't know. I think this schedule is a little bit favorable if you just squint hard enough and assume that maybe Jack Tuttle, the transfer from Utah, starts at quarterback. I really like him. Maybe Justin Fields isn't what we think he is. With, with is, yeah. Indiana, though, they, they are who we think they are. The thing with Indiana is, even let's say they go one or four for those big four games, there's no way that Indiana is not dropping at least two of those toss-up games. It's not like Indiana is this product of recruiting depth and talent and or having a bunch of experience and we're really confident that there's a couple guys that can push them through. Indiana does not have that. They have a running game. And what else? I think their defense could be okay this year. Is okay enough to go 9-3? In the Big Ten, I mean, what offenses are going to put a scare into you other than Ohio State, Nebraska, Penn State, and Michigan? You don't think Wisconsin would just run up and down the field on this team? Wisconsin's got some issues defensively. I, I, I don't love the linebacking core, as much as I did the past couple of years. So I think Indiana would have a chance to run up and down the field on Wisconsin the same way. You don't think Nebraska would not be able to spread out this team? I don't know. Maybe they lose that game. Look, I said they split Ohio State and Michigan. I'm not saying they're going to beat Nebraska and beat Penn State. I'm not giving them a chance in every game. But I think there's a chance they go nine and three. I don't see their best case is seven and five. Their worst case is five and seven. They're, it's a very small window of what they got. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree on the floor for Indiana. Four, maybe five wins. It, there, there's a chance this thing bottoms out and Tom Allen is on the hot seat right there with Lovey Smith and Chris Ash. 
But there's also a chance, in my opinion, that this thing takes off and Indiana does become 9-win Indiana. Moving into the ACC, Florida State is the team that has, in my opinion, a high ceiling and a low floor just because of who they bring in at offensive coordinator, the lack of talent on the offensive line, and the variability that we can see out of this defense. Florida State's a pretty good team everywhere except the offensive line, which are maybe one of the three worst offensive lines in the country. Outside of that, it's not the worst team. It's just they're not going to be able to protect whoever they put at quarterback. Looking at the schedule, I think nine wins could happen potentially. They, they play Syracuse at home. They play Miami at home. We're both in agreement that they're going to lose at Clemson and at Florida. Yep. And maybe they drop another game here. Maybe at Virginia. Maybe Miami at home. But there might only be two or three top 25 teams on the schedule. They play Boise State in Jacksonville, which they probably are going to lose. That's pretty much a Florida State home game. I know it's a night game, so body clock will not be an issue there. But that, to me, that's a toss-up game. This is Boise State football we're aware of, we're talking about, who they do this neutral site game against big opponents on a regular. And we're also talking about an offensive coordinator in Kendall Bryles that turned Houston around in one year with De'Ara King, turned FAU around in one year with Devin Singletary, and ran a prolific offense at Baylor. As shitty of a human being as he is, Kendall Bryles can coach an offense. But can he coach an offensive line? He never had that much offensive line talent at Baylor, and he didn't really have much at Houston last year either. He had himself a little quarterback, De'Ara King, just kind of ran around all over the place, they put up a ton of points, and they threw the ball all over the yard, gained tons of yards every game, and they won more than they lost. And I think that he could replicate that success at Florida State because the schedule is a joke. How, how are they going to run, run around and throw the ball when as soon as they snap the ball, James Blackman's on his back? Because a lot of the concepts that Kendall Bryles runs is one read or two read options from the passing game. So he really doesn't need all that much time in the pocket. James Blackman can look and take off. And a lot of these times, Bryles is able to scheme receivers open. And even still, they have to go to Virginia. We already said Miami... Could be an could be an upset. They do go to Boston College, which is no give me at all, and they do host North Carolina State, and we don't know what North Carolina State exactly going to be. They also go to Wake Forest, which is no easy game in itself. Absolutely, they, if this thing bottoms out, they could lose all those games. Now I see the floor for Florida State being about like four and eight, and just everything going to shit. I think they have a little bit too much talent to go to 4-8 in the secondary. They're going to beat Louisiana Monroe. They're going to beat Louisville. They're going to beat Alabama State. I think they're going to beat Wake Forest. 
honestly, that's really it. I have to agree with you on four and eight being the floor for Florida State. I say, didn't we do the same exact thing last year? Saying there's no possible way that Florida State's going to miss a bowl game, and they missed a bowl game. Yep. Well, it could happen again. Buckle up, Willie Taggart haters. It's going to be a wild ride, no matter which way this thing goes. No, is it as much of a fall as Willie Taggart? Because what exactly do you expect him to do? I mean, this is his second year. He should be starting to institute his own culture his own style of offense. And if we see a team that in Florida State that's worse in year two than it was in year one, his ass is going to be out the door immediately. I mean, they could look like a better team and still lose. That's within the realm of possibilities. It would be hard, but it could happen. Let's stick in the ACC and talk about Virginia Tech. This is a team with a butter-soft schedule. I don't love them at quarterback. In fact, there's not really a single position group that I love about them. Bud Foster had a bad defense last year, but because the schedule's so easy, I think there's a chance that they go 9-3. and three. I mean, there's nothing I love about Virginia Tech. But I think 10-2 and two is within the realm of possibility. So we're both on a similar page here. The three games I can see them losing are at Miami, at Notre Dame, and at Virginia. Maybe Boston College. Virginia and Boston College are probably both toss-ups. And then Miami and Notre Dame are games you could see them easily losing to. I would, my 10-2 scenario would be they lose to Boston College and they lose at Notre Dame. Until they actually lose to Virginia... I will never pick Virginia to win that game. Well, we both know I'm real high on this Virginia team. It's not like Pittsburgh's going to be that bad of a team. Wake Forest is not going to be that bad of a team. But you are right, as there is a lot of winnable games on that schedule. But it's not like Virginia Tech is equipped as a team to, you know, take advantage of that. This is the same team that lost to Old Dominion. Speaking of Old Dominion, Old Dominion is one of these games on their schedule that is an absolute slam dunk win. Old Dominion is one of them. Furman is one of them. Rhode Island is one of them. By the way, who scheduled this Virginia Tech schedule? I have a bone to pick with their athletic director for playing two FCS teams and a team that's like 10 years old in Old Dominion. This is an absolute joke of a non-conference schedule. I read somewhere that they have the 84th toughest schedule in college football, and if this team went undefeated, I might not even think that they deserve to be in the playoffs. I mean, if they beat Notre Dame, I feel like they have an argument, but Virginia Tech always schedules one of the local G5 or or FCS schools, which I personally like. I'm a big of scheduling the local If you're going to play a lower division school, make it a local team. Play James Madison, play Old Dominion, Play VMI. There's no reason to play Furman, though. Furman should be playing South Carolina and Clemson and Wake Forest and NC State. I mean, Furman does play South Carolina and Clemson, but Virginia Tech has no Virginia Tech has no business to ever play JMU again. They never want to play JMU until JMU joins the AAC, of course. Even then, 
After 2011, I never think they're going to play JMU again. Let's talk a little bit about the floor for this team, though. I think their floor is seven and five. What do you think their floor is? I see their floor as six and six, partially because I'm biased and I don't like Virginia Tech, but also because this Virginia Tech team is just not that good. They could obviously lose the two games I'm talking about. They lose the Virginia game, and then they lose two of Miami, Pitt, and Georgia Tech and Wake Forest. By this end of the year, the Georgia Tech should hopefully figure out the offense by this point. Even though they're going to be pretty bad at the beginning of the year, Wake Forest should figure out their quarterback situation. Pitt could very much be the front runner for the ACC Coastal, and they're going to come into that game, Tech game motivated. And then Miami, hopefully at this time, has figured out the quarterback game. I'll tell you this, Pitt played a good month of football last year, and for the rest of the year, they were absolutely atrocious. Duke loses Daniel Jones, probably their best quarterback in program history, who they still only managed to win seven games with. The Duke-Virginia Tech game and the Pitt-Virginia Tech game are both in Blacksburg. Furman and Old Dominion should be easy wins, along with Rhode Island. UNC and Georgia Tech have new coaches and completely need to overhaul their programs. That's seven right there. I think they win those seven games. This is a should, not are they. If everything goes bad, Furman could be a hard game. <laughs> Furman, not. Let's not act like Furman has some bums. Let's move on to a team that we completely agree about, and this is the USC Trojans. This might be the most fun team to watch in the country this season. Fun? If you're not a Trojan fan, let's talk that. Let's clarify that. If you're a Trojan fan, it's probably not going to be very fun. Yeah, last time we talked about the easiest schedules to start the season. I think USC is the toughest schedule to start the season. Let me read through these first six games for you. Fresno State, Stanford, at BYU, Utah on short rest, at Washington, and then at Notre Dame after a bye week. Oh my lord, that is a tough schedule. And they could go 1-5 against those six. And they're looking for a head coach. Yeah. After that, they still have to play Oregon and UCLA. They have to go to Arizona State and Cal in back-to-back weeks. They could end up losing three of those four games, and that puts them at 4-8. and eight. I definitely think the floor is four and eight. Maybe if everything goes bad, they go three and nine, two and ten. But I'm not that bold. Yeah, USC has some receiving talent. Defensively, they're not that bad. We're just assuming that JT Daniels doesn't figure it out and somehow gets worse. Maybe all the media pressure gets to his head. Maybe Clay Helton second guesses himself and doesn't call shots as aggressively as possible. Or maybe Graham Harrell decides to pull a Cliff Kingsbury and just leave before the season even starts. Could you imagine Cliff Kingsbury? Saturday, he's in Los Angeles calling plays for USC. Sunday, he's driving down to Glendale. He got his mic on. He's calling plays as a head coach of Arizona. That'd be a sight to behold. I think someone should do it. Maybe maybe they do it with, like, Minnesota and then also the Vikings or something like that. 
They're the offensive coordinator of one school and the head coach of the other. The Obviously, practices. it's not going to happen, but it yeah. would be fun. Could you imagine the practices? Oh would my it, God! You would never get to see his pl- players. Just or would you have to home. have? Would you have to have the practices at the same site? Like, all right, everyone, we're, ha- we're getting the D1 team, getting the football team, and we're getting the NFL team. We're putting them all on the same field. And they would run the same system, and the defensive coordinators in the NFL would watch the games from Saturday and say, that's what they're running on Sunday. <laughs> it, it would be terrible. But it'd be, I would sign up to watch that. That seems to be a book or a movie. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what we need. Or maybe, like, a small college coach, like a JUCO coach, is also a high school coach. That would be something. But the best case scenario for USC is 9-3. and three. That is best case. That is even a little bit optimistic for me. The best case is that they just win all their home games, and then they lose the Washington Notre Dames and Oregon games. Well, well, Oregon is at home. Well, they still lose to Oregon. Sorry. Yeah, I think Utah might have some trouble with the USC game. Washington shouldn't have a problem beating USC. Notre Dame shouldn't have a problem beating USC. Those are both on the road. I don't trust USC to win the rest of their games that are pretty much toss-ups. Stanford and Oregon, even in the best-case scenario, they're going to lose one, maybe two of those games. Like I've been saying, my trust level with USC is down in the mud. I'm going to say that they lose both of those games and go 8-4, and four, even in their best-case scenario. Does 8-4 and four save Clay Hilton's job? Or Clay Hilton? Probably not. Yeah, you might as well just fire Clay Hilton now. All right. Are we getting the plane trackers ready for Matt Campbell then? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I always have flight tracker, flight aware up on my computer screen. There's yeah. nothing more fun than tracking flights, whether it's coaches to go visit recruits or coaches to go talk to other schools. Or are you tracking your ex-girlfriend? Ooh, maybe that's the case. A team that I want to track this year, though, is the Baylor Bears. I think this is a team that could potentially contend for third place in the Big 12. That's where it is. I think Baylor has the, is going to have the most vanilla season of any P5 team this year. They're going to go 7-5 at best and 7-5 at worst. Calling a shot right now. Baylor's going 7-5. and five. Check in with us at the end of the season to see if Cam's right. There might be some punishment waiting ahead for him if Baylor is not a 7-5 and five team. Yes, Baylor does return some talent. Yes, Matt Rule is a very good head coach. We all agree with that. Uh, where are you seeing more than seven wins? Uh, I mean, maybe something goes right at quarterback for Baylor. I mean, Charlie Brewer is not that bad. Yeah, no, Brewer had a good season last year. 3,000 yards and 19 touchdowns in a conservative system compared to the rest of the Big 12. I think the rest of the offense is talented. I think they have good talent at running back. Last year, they had four running backs rush for 375 yards or more. 
and they all come back, so they have depth there. And let's be honest, it's not hard to score points in the Big 12. I still think they're going to lose to Oklahoma and Texas, even though they're both at home. Maybe, maybe, maybe in the best-case scenario, they beat one of those two. Also, Iowa State comes to Baylor. Chances are, if they win two of those three games, and I'm not saying they're going to, but Iowa State at home, that's a toss-up. They could win one of Oklahoma or Texas. They would just have to lose one game between at Oklahoma State, at TCU, at Kansas State, and at Kansas for their road schedule. They are not walking into TCU and winning. I just don't see that happening. I don't see them walking into Stillwater and winning. I think they lose to Oklahoma. I think they lose to Texas, which means they drop one of Iowa State, Texas Tech, and Kansas State, most likely Iowa State, and they go 7-5. and five. And we don't talk about Baylor for the rest of the year. Woohoo! It's better than anything they were doing a couple years ago. Yeah, they could go 0 12 and it would be better than our Bryles. I mean, off the field anyway. I would rather be 0 12 with Matt Rule than 12 0 with our Bryles. And I think you would too. I would too. I don't know what the donors do. Moving on to a team that could actually go 0-12 this season. What do we think about New Jersey's finest college football team? Well, actually, they'd probably get kicked by Princeton. But the Rutgers Scarlet Knights, what do we think the ceiling is for this team? Because the floor is obviously going 0-12 and losing every game 60 to nothing. Rutgers is the embodiment of New Jersey to the rest of America. Not very good. Whoa! Hey, I'm going to take a little offense to that. Being a native New Jerseyan, we have some stuff to be proud of. We have beaches and proximity to other states because we just desperately want to leave New Jersey. Never mind. Still, it's not like Rutgers is just some great team. And it would take some, honestly, I do think they beat UMass. Like, it would take some real suckage to not beat UMass. We were saying that about the Eastern Michigan game a few years ago, and somehow they lost to an Eastern Michigan team that hadn't made a bowl game since, like, the 1980s or something. Hey, Purdue lost to Eastern Michigan, and things happen. Okay, so Rutgers is going to lose to UMass, and then they're going to come back and beat Ohio State towards the end of the season. If that happens, Ohio State, there's no coming back from that. Ryan Day would lose his job immediately. If that happens, we're going to film a live show at Rutgers. 100%. Getting back to Rutgers' ceiling, what do you think? I guess the best case scenario is they beat Illinois, and then they win Liberty and UMass. Do I think it's going to happen? No, I think they're going to lose to Liberty. I think they're going to lose to Illinois, too. I think they're going to lose to Liberty. They may be Illinois. I'm not sure. I think they go 1-11. They're one win to UMass. Rutgers barely even has a ceiling. To me, their ceiling is there's a scandal in the basketball department. The athletic department is bleeding money, and they don't have the money to fire Chris Ash. Maybe that's the ceiling for Rutgers. Or maybe the ceiling for Rutgers is that they do fire Chris Ash, 
and they're able to somehow pull in a great coach. But nothing that happens on the field for Rutgers this season is going to tell me this team is going to be a successful program in the future. All of their achievements would have to come off the field, whether it's making a commitment to Chris Ash because he pulls in a good recruit, or they go out and they hire a great new coach from the group of five, or a lesser Power 5 program, which there really are no lesser Power 5 programs than Rutgers. Last thing about Rutgers, how good do you think they would be in the FCS? Because I don't think they'd be a top 15 team in the FCS right now. I think they'd be an FCS playoff team. I think they'd be behind North Dakota State, James Madison, a couple of the other teams from the Missouri Valley. Because you think, don't think they're better than North Dakota State? Don't think they could be Kennesaw State, Ethan Washington. They're not being South Dakota State. They're not being James Madison. They're not being Princeton. Maybe they beat Colgate, North Carolina A&T. They're not being Wofford. They're not being Nichols, which should put them in around the 13-ish range, the 13 to 15-ish range. After that, I think they're better than a top 20 team in the FCS, but I'm not. They're not a top 10 team in the FCS. And that's kind of sad. We should probably stop talking about Rutgers because I'm assuring you that we've scared off all of the listeners to this podcast. And we should talk about a blue blood team of college football. Let's talk about Ohio State. Yes, because we want to talk about something positive. We can both agree that the ceiling for this team is winning a national championship, going 12-0. and They have the athletes to do it. In theory, they could have the quarterback play to do it. Their coach looks to be a rising star. I think the more interesting discussion is what happens if all goes wrong in Columbus? And they go 7-5 and Ryan Day gets fired. 7-5, that's kind of bold. Although, there are parts to that I agree with. Here's the thing. We don't actually know how good of a coach Ryan Day is. We assume he's going to be a good head coach, but he really hasn't ever been a head coach. The one game he did coach was the TCU game, but he really wasn't the head coach of that. All his job was to just not fuck up during the actual game. Because Urban Myers still ran all the practices. They still had all of Urban Myers' game plans. All he had to do was just not do anything stupid. And they still almost, and they were losing that game for portions of that, of that time. They could lose to Cincinnati. If they lose to Cincinnati, then it's conceivable that everything goes downhill from there. But even if they don't, they go into Nebraska 4-0, I still think 7-5 is a possibility. We both can agree that they would have to lose to Penn State and Michigan at the end of the season. So when talking about their floor, if you think that the floor is going 9-3, and and that's what I feel like the floor is for Ohio State, they would be losing those two games. They would still go into the Penn State game at 9-1. and so I think Ryan Day is going to do just fine this year, even if things bottom out, whether they lose to Nebraska or Northwestern or maybe Indiana in their worst-case scenario. They still have a run game to lean on. Justin Fields can run the ball. J.K. Dobbins can run all over the place. I like Chris Olave receiver, along with K.J. Hill. I like their receiver's coach, Brian Hartline. He's a big improvement on and off the field over Zach Smith, and we saw that last year. I think they're just more talented than everybody else in the Big Ten, that even if they lose the two big games to end the year, which it sucks for them that they're back-to-back, 
And we've seen before that they lose random games at Big Ten West teams, so maybe Nebraska or Northwestern. They're more talented than everybody else, and they could run over everybody else. We've said this about a lot of teams that there's no possible way they can buy them out. They're so talented, and they do. Like, Ohio State went 12-1, and and obviously we see now with our rules colored glasses say, obviously this team was great. How did they make the playoffs? But remember, this is a team no one really thought as a playoff contender because of just how bad they looked while winning games. They did not look like a great team until the Michigan game. That was really the catalyst that turned everything around last year. The Michigan State game was ugly. The Minnesota game was ugly. The Purdue game was really ugly. And they should have lost the Maryland game because that quarterback just blew that throw. Here's something interesting for you. Even if Ohio State beats Michigan last year, if they had lost that game to Maryland, Michigan goes to the Big Ten Championship. Think about that, Harbaugh haters. Michigan was not one win against Ohio State away from being in Indianapolis. There were one play in the Ohio State-Maryland game away from making it to Indianapolis. That will go down as one of the most forgotten memories, but that was the right call, the right play, and he just threw the worst pass that was possible. to. He made the right read. He made a terrible pass. Shame. But... It does prove that Ohio State, even with talent, is not this unbeatable juggernaut. Absolutely. Ohio State has its cracks and its flaws, but the defense without Greg Schiano should get better. And to me, even the worst case scenario, they're gonna go nine and three. Worst case is seven and five. You never expect a team to bomb out, then they do. But watch this September seventh game against Cincinnati. Because you better believe all those Cincinnati players are going to play the, try to play the best games of their life to take, to take out Ohio State. Yep, because these are the guys that Ohio State turned down. Now let's talk away from some of the depressing stuff like going 0-12 and talk about our dreams and mostly our bucket lists. Yeah, so I figured the best way to talk about bucket list stadiums in this sport is to break it up into the four time zones. The Eastern time zone, the Central time zone, the Mountain time zone, and the Pacific time zone. So do you want to start off? Yeah, sure. I'll talk a little bit about my bucket list stadium in the Eastern time zone. Now, we're both from the East Coast, so we've both seen a bunch of stadiums up and down the coast, but for me... My favorite stadium that I have not been to on the East Coast is Dowdy Ficklin Stadium in Greenville, North Carolina. Home of the East Carolina Pirates, it seats about 50,000 people, and they draw good crowds. It's a raucous atmosphere when the team is good. Their no quarter in between the third and fourth quarter is pretty much the group of five's version of the jump around. East Carolina might have the biggest fan base in college football in the state of North Carolina. Because UNC football is kind of an afterthought, and NC State has been underwhelming for their history. East Carolina would be a fun trip in a little college town in the middle of nowhere. It's exactly what college football should be. East Carolina is also renovating the stadium. So if you go go past renovations, it's going to look much nicer than it already does now. But I have been to Dowdy Fickle Stadium. 
is just the not just the atmosphere, but everything around it. You could really tell that East Carolina is proud of their program. If only the football program reciprocated that at times. So do you want to talk about your bucket list stadium on the East Coast? Yes, my bucket list stadium, I've driven past it, but I've never actually seen it. And that is Cardinal Stadium, formerly Papa John's Cardinal Stadium, in the city of Louisville, home of the Cardinals. And the bigger reason why I want to go is because the renovation looks awesome. Damn right it does. That stadium looks so nice on television. When they have primetime games there, they do the whole blackout thing. In my opinion, that's my favorite blackout of a stadium in college football. Not just that. I'm, I was just enamored by just the atmosphere around Louisville. Yes, Louisville is known for its basketball program. But this is a school that really balances football and basketball really well. The new Adidas wing looks really cool. And I love how Adidas is just going full in on Louisville. I think it makes for a very fun environment. And I think the Muhammad Ali helmets that they did during the the Louisville-Florida State game were some of the nicest-looking helmets I saw. Maybe that gave them the spirit and the courage to kick the absolute crap out of Florida State, beating them 63-20 to back in 2016. Well, Lamar Jackson definitely epitomized the quote from Muhammad Ali. You can't hit what you can't see. You can't. <laughs> the hands can't touch what the eyes can't see. And they could not see Lamar Jackson any part of that football game. Lamar Jackson, yes, he was a sight to behold. To me, there's a great sight to behold in the central time zone. This is a town I've been to, a campus I've visited, and I've seen the stadium, but I've never seen a game there. And that's Kyle Field in College Station the home of the Texas A&M Aggies. It used to be a mediocre stadium in the state of Texas. One of the end zones really had no seats. It looked a little bit like a blocky version of DKR in Austin. And then they renovated it. They poured SEC money into the stadium. It just means more. And indeed, in the state of Texas, it means a lot more than it does anywhere else in the country. 102,733 fans can fit in the Kyle Field. It's three stories, three levels around the entire stadium. There have been times where they've done red, white, and blue stripes throughout the stadium, or they all come in maroon and their Aggie core gear. There are night games there that are just so cool to see on television. The Texas A&M-Clemson game last year, it felt like the fans were just on top of the field, and it made it feel like a place that I had to go to. Yes, the traditions of Texas A&M are large, just as big as the stadium. And obviously the meme around Reddit is that Texas A&M is in love with anything that's called a tradition. Did someone say tradition? Yep, now we got a new tradition. But I'm going to go with one of their newer rivals, if you do consider it a rivalry, and that is Death Valley, the only Death Valley, and one of the cathedrals of college football. That is Tiger Stadium. A night game at LSU has always been my dream. 
because that place is not just big, it's the intimidation factor of a night game at LSU just seems amazing. Not only do I want to go there just for the night game atmosphere, because an LSU-Alabama game at night in Death Valley is definitely something you want to experience for yourself. And trust me, I've never been to LSU either. That would be a fun place to go see a game. As the sun sets to the west of Tiger Stadium, it's Saturday night in Death Valley. I want to hear that come through the loudspeakers. I want to hear Colin Baton Rouge. Maybe see someone pay the band to play neck. Maybe see LSU pull off a big upset against Alabama and everyone storms the field. I also want to see the game day atmosphere, the tailgates, and the great food in Louisiana. I want to experience it all, too. Tiger Stadium is really a great place to go see a game. Yes, if you've never... Have you had crawfish before? No, I've not. Try some. Get... Wait, you're I've been to New Orleans before. The food in New Orleans is probably the best food city I've ever been to. I assume Baton Rouge is very, very similar. It is, but you also have more cultural food. You have more of the southernish cultural food. As you kind of get a little bit away from that Frenchish feel that New Orleans has. I'm a Saints fan, so I have my share of New Orleans-style food. But if you've never had crawfish, don't don't eat some in New Jersey. You're not going to find good crawfish in New Jersey. Find someone who's from Louisiana. I mean, you know, or, you know, find somewhere where you can get some Louisiana-style seasonings and get some good crawfish, and your life will be changed. Speaking of changing your life, there's a life-changing stadium, in my opinion, out in the mountain time zone. It's a hidden gem among college football fans, but if you're a fan of FCS football, you know it very well. Washington Grizzly Stadium in Missoula, Montana, holds over 25,000 fans, nestled right into the mountains. There are times where it snows out there, and one of the best parts about being at an FCS stadium where everyone's all in, they pack 25,000-plus fans into the stadium every week, is that playoff games are on campus. And right now, this doesn't exist at the FBS level, so this is the best we've got. But imagine going to an on-campus playoff atmosphere in the middle of nowhere in Montana. Snow is coming down in buckets. You're packed in with everyone from campus, everyone from town, in the middle of December to see a win-or-go-home game at the FCS level. I think that would be something really cool. Montana's a state I've never been to, but I really love the mountains and being outdoors. And something just feels special about it. I love the outdoors. I hate snow. I don't know. I guess I'm just used to it. Yeah, I don't like snow. But just look at the mountain views. Looks amazing. It definitely looks like a must-see stadium. I'm going to go for one of the newer stadiums in college football. And that is Colorado State's brand-new on-campus stadium. Canvas Stadium. And... The reason why is it has the modern amenities that make college football 
come to the 21st century, but it still has that feel of a local town. Like, like it, the place buys into Colorado State. If they got a good football team in that place, you could just imagine how much better it would not just look, but how much better it would be perceived around the entire country. Because quite honestly, I don't know how many people that don't follow college football have ever heard of Campus Stadium. Fort Collins feels like a really fun town to spend a day in. And if you could see a college football game there, there's plenty to do between the mountains and being outdoors and the rivers. And the beer. Well, yeah, I was going to say that. Um, Canvas Stadium has all the amenities of a great NFL stadium that's brand new, but has all the on-campus feel of a college stadium and the traditions, speaking of Texas A&M, tradition that you would want in playing on campus. Now we're going to move to the Pacific time zone. We both have really good picks for this one. I'm going to say Autzen Stadium in Eugene, Oregon. Now I'll preface this by saying I've never even been to the West Coast. But Autzen Stadium... For a great program like Oregon, it's not too big. It's only between fifty and 60,000. Wikipedia has it listed at 54,000. They sell out every game. It feels like a great, intimate, but loud atmosphere. It's hard to win a game at Autzen Stadium. The fans are all in. It feels like taking the laid-back, chill culture of the West Coast and combining it with the passion for college football that you see in the South. Now, are you sure Nike's not giving you a check to say that? I cannot disclose my information about my most recent conversation with Phil Knight. Now, I'm not going to lie. Oregon itself seems just like an awesome place. No Austin Stadium. I've, when I think of Oregon, if there's a place, it wouldn't necessarily be Austin Stadium. It'd be the track. I want to see the track program. Hayward Field looks really cool. Yes. Hell, all the facilities in Eugene look amazing. PK Park for baseball is really nice. Matthew Knight Arena for basketball. The fans are on top of you, and the student section is really cool. I'd love to see Oregon go all in on hockey and create a Division One hockey team because I'm sure they'd have the best arena in college hockey. That's what Nike money does for you. But McKnight Arena, Oregon just has really nice facilities, but I'm going to take one of my personal favorites, and that's Mayland Stadium. I'm going to put it on the West Coast, but make it smaller and a little bit more open field, and that is Husky Stadium, one of the just nicest-looking stadiums that you'll find. You have the water view right in front of you. You have the sail gating, which I've always wanted to do. And I've never been able to do that in Nayland. You have a rabid fan base. You're near, you know, civilization, which is very big for me as someone from Atlanta. And you're going to see quality football as long as Chris Peterson's still at Washington. Historic program. Husky Stadium is one of the nicest places to watch a football game in the country. Husky 
stadium is indeed beautiful. They did an amazing job when renovating it. They brought the stands closer to the field, got rid of the track, and it looks absolutely gorgeous. Honestly, with any of these eight stadiums that we've talked about, I feel like it would be very hard to go wrong. Or we could go to Ruse Field and see the red and black of Eastern Washington's field. Oh, don't get me started on FCS football. I did bring up one FCS stadium, but if you wanted me to go into FCS football, that might be another topic for another episode. We'll see in the future. That's all we got for today. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Dual Threat Podcast. Once again, I'm Nick. I'm Cam. We'll see you next time.